0: Welcome to The Blockchain VC, a podcast about crypto and the digital assets ecosystem. My name is Tomer Federman, and I'm the managing partner at Federman Capital. We invest in the most promising blockchain startups across the globe. I have more than 15 years of experience in tech, and before starting the fund, I was on the product side at Facebook, where I led product strategy and global growth of some of Facebook's major ad products. Previously, I also lived in Silicon Valley for a few years, where I attended Stanford Business School. You can find me on Twitter at Tomer Federman. Before we begin, please note that this podcast is for informational purposes only, and all the opinions expressed on this show, either by guests or me, do not reflect the opinions of Federman Capital. Nothing on the Blockchain DC podcast represents an investment or financial advice. Please, do your own research. Also, if you like this episode of the Blockchain VC and want to help us bring more awareness to the space, I'd really appreciate it if you can rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast. This only takes a few seconds and helps us get the word out. Okay, let's do this. So, really excited to welcome to the show today Josh Stein, uh, co founder and CEO of Harbor. Josh, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me, Tomer. Excited.
0: Yeah. So, Josh, before we go deep into Harbor and uh, some of the exciting recent developments on your end, I always like to start by asking you a bit about your background and how you got into the blockchain and crypto space to begin with.
1: Sure. So... um... Uh, much like a lot of your Israeli audience, I did a stint in the army, got out and spent a couple of years just knocking about. And then I went to law school. I was a federal prosecutor for a while, really enjoyed that. Then I was a general counsel in a number of uh, companies in highly regulated industries. And the last one before Harvard was Zenefits, which was a HR payroll and insurance startup in San Francisco. While I was there I got to know um, David Sachs who's one of the original uh, PayPal folks uh, and is a longtime successful entrepreneur in Silicon Valley um, David had left Zenefits. Um, I had sta- I had stayed there for a while and then when I was ready to move on I reached out to him um, to see kind of what if he had any ideas for me and he said hey there's this great a uh, new company. I had this idea for Harbor. You should get involved. I said, what is it? He says, a blockchain company. And I had an immediate reaction and said, no way. That's all a scam. It's all a money <laughs> <Right>. So, <laughs> and, then, and then he said, no, you should really dig into it. And when David Sachs tells you to dig into something, you do. And um, so what had happened was David was raising his first VC fund uh, middle to the end of 2017, and he wanted to tokenize. He was really into blockchain technology. He wanted to enable some liquidity for his investors. And as he dug into it, he realized there was no compliant way to do it. And he had an aha moment. He said, "Hey, there's a business here." And as a result, he had reached out to uh, myself and the other co-founders, and we got gathered together. And and that's how Harbor got going.
0: Mm, interesting. And and why did he want to tokenize it?
1: Uh, two things he wanted. He was really just entranced with the technology, um, and then to enable some liquidity for the LPs. I mean, ultimately, uh, one of the key things that tokenization brings is increased liquidity by making everything digital rather than a, a paper-based, cumbersome system.
0: Right. I always wonder there. Um, you know, how much of it is really the. That- technical or shall we say, you know, the the technology being a barrier as opposed to, you know, more of, of, I guess, a market structure issue, right? So you want to sell your, say, um, you know, holdings in a certain fund. How how do you actually go about finding the right buyer? Is it really like a a technology barrier or is it more a market issue?
1: There are three. So in the... um, private security space those things that aren't publicly registered there are three main barriers to liquidity one is a technology or logistical piece and tokenization attacks that another is there's a regulatory piece so and it depends on the country you're in, but in the us for example if you're uh, private security usually there's limits on maximum number of investors they have to be accredited or qualified purchasers there's all these cumbersome regulations mm-hmm. um and Tokenization obviously doesn't get rid of the regulations, but what it does do is because you can enforce those regulations in code, it lets you have liquidity to the maximum that those regulations um, allow. And then the third piece is um, exactly what you identified, which is structural barriers, usually based off information. Markets trade on information. These securities are private. They don't have to share the same kinds of information. So um, without information, that's going to naturally dampen Um, trading volume you know i think the ultimate vision is tokenization is a piece of the technology you need to unlock liquidity in these markets Mm -hmm. Um, and ultimately i think the blockchain becomes like the dns system for the internet so you can find using the dns system on the internet you can find literally any website and you have search tools like google to help you but that doesn't mean that every, le- every website is equally and completely liquid, i.e. has the same number of users. Obviously, um, you've got your top 50 or 100 websites, and then it drops off pretty quickly. You would see the same thing um, in these markets. But I do think that blockchain is an important component of how you unlock liquidity in this space.
0: Interesting. So in your, in your vision, you know, fast forward five, ten years from now, Do we still have illiquid assets or does everything becomes liquid in one way or the other?
1: I think it becomes much more of a spectrum. So today, it's binary. You have the public markets, highly fractionated ownership, deeply liquid, but it takes a long time to go public. It's extremely expensive and onerous. So only um, large assets that really need that deep liquidity go. There's private raising capital privately, which is um, much faster, cheaper, and easier than the public markets. But the downside is there's almost no liquidity to debt. I think liquidity starts to become a spectrum. So some things start to look um, actually fairly liquid. It will never be as liquid as the public markets. If you want public market liquidity, you have to go public. But you can have far more liquidity. I think debt instruments are ideal for liquidity, and we can kind of uh, talk in detail why that is. LP interests in VC funds, for example, can be more liquid than they are today, but they're still gonna be relatively illiquid. So when we talk about unlocking liquidity, we talk about using technology to overcome some of the informational barriers, to overcome the logistical barriers, um, to maximize flexibility under the regulatory barriers, but at the end of the day, that becomes a spectrum of liquidity, and how liquid instrument is is going to be dependent on specific regulations and, and the information available.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, makes sense. And um, so, before we go deeper into your vision and and how you see the markets evolve, I, I'd love to actually go back to what you said earlier. Right, one of the things I'm interested in is you seem to have a pretty solid traditional background you know went to a good law school and uh, as general counsel at the zenefits and so forth how do you how do you make that transition to the entrepreneurship side and then blockchain in particular
1: yeah so you know when david said you should really dig into this i did and as i got to understand the technology and the possibilities for it i did a complete 180. Um, i think the technology, one is, is I've dealt with um, fundraising in um, venture-backed companies before. The whole process is very high paper-based process, um, and it's extraordinarily logistically difficult to do rounds. It's just, it's far more paperwork and hassle than it should be. Um, I knew that this stuff was almost completely illiquid. And if you even if you see secondaries in private companies today, it's a very narrow slice of of companies, it's done through in the U.S. at least through this very cumbersome tender offer process. Um, it's very sort of high bound, um, and I was just entranced with this vision of assets becoming more highly fractionated, i.e., more widely owned um, and become becoming far more accessible. And I think it's worth going back to the beginning of the capital markets. It was was three, four hundred years, four hundred years ago that you had the first rise of the real capital markets and it was combining two magical ingredients, fractional ownership and liquidity. And that, and that combination together um, jumpstarted modern capitalism. It was folks in coffee shops in London, in Amsterdam, at the corners of Wall and Broad um, in a newly settled Island of Manhattan. And they were trading these newfangled things called stocks in these newfangled things called joint stock companies. Um, and that highly fractionated ownership that you could trade, even just having a few dozen people trading in a coffee shop, transform capitalism. Private capital formation exceeds public capital formation in every country around the world. And to bring even a modicum of liquidity uh, to a moderate increase in the fractional ownership, I think will transform the private markets in the same way that we transformed the public markets or created public markets in the first place.
0: Got it. So when you started digging into the technology, you could see the impact it could have both on liquidity and fractional ownership um, in a way that's not really possible right now with legacy um, uh, systems that are in place.
1: Yeah, you could see it just in what Harbor was founded to do, which was to apply this technology to ownership in private securities. But just even more generally generally, distributed ledger technology, there is so much friction. And error and um, wasted value in maintaining all these different ledgers. I mean, even investments in private companies, like when I was at you get pinged every quarter by all these VC shops or their auditors saying, "Please confirm that my VC that this VC owns these shares in the company." And every time, I'd be like, "Well, didn't you guys sign the docs? You have, I mean, you should know what you own. <laughs> Why do you need me to?" Right. Send you an email, right? If we had one ledger, um, I mean, everyone talks about the settlement processes in the capital markets, but there are so many different things that we have to do to do that. Even, um, you know, my parents to this day still balance their checkbook with the banks. The banks have gone to a level of accuracy that I think most of us don't do that anymore. We just scan mm-hmm. for errors. But there's so many interactions we have where both of us keep a set of books and we have to reconcile it. And it's cumbersome and expensive. And then we get disputes because we're keeping two sets of books that don't reconcile. Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm. And in your mind, there's no efficient way to do that with traditional databases. Uh,
1: You can do it with traditional databases. Um, I think with blockchain technology, um, it is a much better solution in certain situations. The greater the number of players Um, And the more often that you transact, the more efficient it's going to be to use a blockchain technology. But there's a number of situations. I mean, I I think a great example of, say, a permissioned blockchain system that would be more efficient than current systems would be the foreign exchange markets. These numbers aren't exactly correct, but they're directionally correct. I think it's something like 85 or 90% of the value of foreign currency traded every day is done by the top 12 or 15 banks. You can imagine them having a private permission blockchain. Each one has a node um, and they could get instant settlement times. They could have no reconciliation issues. They could save themselves a ton of compliance, back office dollars, um, certainty. The regulators could have a node and know in real time how all these banks are exposed. So your stress testing, your overall risk management of the system would be far more efficient. Um, and with a permission blockchain system that has all of 15 or 20 participants, the um, throughput would be very high. That would be a great example. You can think of in the logistics space. So I was at a defense contractor, did a lot of export import work. Um, the logistics, getting things through different stages, um, through customs and shipping, it's a very high bound system. Nobody's systems talk to anybody else's systems. A lot of them are still on paper. And not only is that extraordinarily inefficient, but it introduces a lot of ability uh, to introduce counterfeit goods, to smuggle. Um, if all of that was on a blockchain based system where you could see from beginning to end, it would not eliminate fraud or counterfeit goods, but it would reduce the ability to introduce them uh, drastically.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That's that's always one of the things that amazes me about the space, right? The reputation that it has in certain circles, as opposed to actually the potential to introduce a much greater level of transparency and accountability. I would love to learn more about Harbo. So so what is Harbour? What do you guys do?
1: Yeah, so um, I think... Uh, for your audience, which is a very crypto friendly audience, you can think of us as a security token issuance platform. In terms of how we present to the market and the value prop, we talk about that we control the entire life cycle um, of private placements, so of alternative investments. So getting the investor into the investment, managing while they're in the investment, and controlling them trading out of the investment, which you can think of as a subscription automation or a fundraising management um, system to get the investor in, an investor relations or cap table management tool to manage the investor while they're in, and then, of course, the to- this tokenization compliance protocol to control how this uh, digital security trades so that every trade, every time, everywhere is compliant with those rules that are codable. Um, and, uh, and so the first two pieces, the first one, the fundraising management, it's just simply a system where you can send an investor a link, they click on it, they create an account, you do your KYC AML vetting, you do your accreditation, if that's necessary, i.e. you onboard and vet the investor. Then you do the flow of documents. They sign in a DA, they get into a data room, they see a private placement memorandum, they sign a subscription agreement. And then you do the flow of funds. They get instructions on how to fund, you process payment you match who's paid with who's signed, you close on the investor. So a normal private placement, but because it's all online and electronic and seamless with a great UX UI, you can raise capital for more investors, for more countries, more quickly and more compliantly than if you did it all the way it's normally done, which is you're faxing, you're emailing, um, you're trying to track who's signed with who's paid. I mean, when I've done fundraising for um, companies, Anytime you have more than 10 people in the round, you want to blow your brains out. This one signed but didn't fund. That one funded but didn't sign. This one funded the wrong amount. This one signed the wrong docs. And then every quarter or uh, so, their auditors are pinging you. So you have that subscription automation is the first piece.
0: So, so to be clear, you provide the platform, but the docs themselves, there's no templates or anything like that that you provide. You just provide the platform, and then each fund or each, I guess, asset manager can provide their own kind of customized content in relation to their offering.
1: That's correct. We don't so we do not at all. That's their lawyers that dictate the content of the PPM the subscription agreement. The one thing we won't work with them on is just the um, you can think of it as the graphical layout. The it amazes me the ability of lawyers to insist on structuring documents in a way that it's impossible to fill out electronically online because you have all these different, all these different fields you have to enter in the middle of a paragraph. Right. And it's like just, I mean, just in the graphical layout and the way in which they resist having this be done in a way that's clear and easy just amazes me. But no, it's to your point though, it's that fund manager, that sponsor who, who is providing the document.
0: Got it. So, so when you talk about compliance, what do you mean exactly? Because Co- it's not compliance in terms of the actual content. So how does it help with compliance?
1: So on the fundraising management piece, that first part of getting the investor in, we're, provide, we're providing a tool that helps you capture identity documents, a copy of the passport or driver's license. And we've got some great tech that way. We run automated compliance checks. So you're verifying. We have these automated tools that to help verify the authenticity of the document in addition to a manual review, automated tools that check against sanctions lists. We can um, require accreditation according to the standards of the country where um, that investor is. So, for example, there are certain accreditation standards in the U.S. In Canada, how you prove accreditation, what it means is different. Um, And then also, even on the fundraising stage, we're tracking who's coming in to make sure that you don't exceed what the securities laws or the tax laws require. So, for example, um, in Canada, you can have an unlimited number of investors as long as they're all accredited. In the U.S., depending on the structure, you're limited to 99 or 1999 per class of equity. So what you don't want to do is sell 2002, close on the investors, realize you sold too many, mm-hmm. and now have to go file publicly or if you're a re you lose your tax status. So that's what I mean by compliance. We're making sure you're not selling to somebody who's a prohibited person. We're making sure they're accredited or meeting whatever the standard is for the jurisdiction they're coming from. And we're tracking these complicated requirements around minimum investor numbers, and maximum investor numbers, and beneficial ownership requirements, and other things like that to make sure that you're maintaining your tax status and you're not having to go to public.
0: Got it. Makes sense. So who are the primary... I guess, stakeholders for you guys? Is it is it fund managers? Is it is it administrators? Is it is it like the lawyers? Maybe it's all of them. like How does that work?
1: Uh, our clients are fund managers, and where we're starting to get some real traction is what I call emerging fund managers, people with, call it, 50 million to 500 million AUM raised from uh, larger numbers of individuals or smaller institutions, uh, because those are people for whom... Because they're raising from larger numbers of people, they need a tool to help make that process better because they're in a slice of the market where they're competing for capital. They're not Blackstone or Goldman Sachs. Um, Any tool that provides them an advantage in providing better investor experience and making sure those dollars don't slip away in, um, you know, we haven't gotten the liquidity on the back end. but providing a better experience, not just getting into the investment, but while they're in and when they exit. Those are people who are going to be early adopters of technology tools, and so that's where we see it. It's, I'd say, it's um, funds, so uh, LP interests, debt interests, um, and other sorts of similar alternatives.
0: So, when you say funds, you're saying okay, so it's alternatives. I mean, any anything in particular there? I mean, is it mostly you know private equity, VCs, uh, maybe hedge funds? Curious, kind of what's the what's the breakdown there.
1: So our clients so far are predominantly real estate funds. Their investors hold, um, some of them hold LP interest, equity. Some of them hold um, debt notes. So we have some interesting clients. Um, we got this really interesting client, ICAP, that we can talk about in some detail that might be of interest. But they actually, their investors all hold debt notes. So the investors are getting a, a simple coupon, 9 uh, 10 11%. Um, And then they're managing that money and and investing it in real estate uh, pref equity deals. Um, We do have a uh, hedge fund client um, and we do have some other asset classes. Um, I think what's really of interest, I think emerging fund managers is sort of more broadly as one sector, whether that's hedge fund or real estate funds and whether their investors hold debt or equity. Um, I think debt instruments are very interesting because I think those will end up being on the higher end of the liquidity spectrum that we talked about rather than the lower end and i think you know that might be worth a little bit of discussion it was
0: yeah yeah would love to would love to hear more about that and why you think that's a particularly interesting use case
1: yeah so look what um, let's talk first about what tokenization or digitization does that attacks the the biggest impact is to the um, logistical barriers to trade so we talked about the public market liquidity but Imagine a world in which um, every time you wanted to trade a stock on the New York Stock Exchange, you had to email or fax somebody a document. They had to sign it. Um, they had to fax it back, and then the company Apple had to approve the trade. Obviously, liquidity would be far far less than it is today, right? But those are all digital. It may not be blockchain based, but those are all digital exchanges. Right. So you know, in in the world, of private placements, it's literally everything's in paper. You're faxing it. You're emailing it. It's going to the GP or transfer agent. It will take, you know, three days to three weeks to look at it, to then send it back and say it's wrong. So tokenization attacks that. But I think what's interesting about debt is debt has certain characteristics that um, have less inhibition to, to liquidity. So one of the big ones is we talked about you need information to trade. Well, the information or due diligence you need to do to trade equity in these private investments is pretty extensive. If I'm going to buy an LP interest in a fund, well, what's the fund invested in? What's the track record of the manager? What do I think those returns are going to be? And then that manager usually has a complicated promote structure. How they get paid is complicated. And so then I got to figure out what's the return and then how does that waterfall happen to me getting paid? Equity is just much harder to figure out whether it's a good investment or not. Debt is much easier. What do I need to know for debt? I need to know duration. How long before I get my principal back? I need to know the coupon. What's the interest rate? And then I need to know the credit rating, which is easier to do. Um, And so I think what becomes really interesting is, you know, take asset-backed securities, which now are issued in tranches in the hundreds of millions. So only the largest institutions can buy them. I think if you quote unquote tokenize, if you use platforms like Harbor, which um, provides an efficient way to get investors in an efficient way to manage them while they're in, and then controls the trading, you can have far more people. Unlike equity, in the U.S., there's an unlimited number of investors in debt. You now have very low information requirements to understand it. You could take these tranches, that are only sold in the hundreds of millions of dollars, and price them in million-dollar tranches. And now, all of a sudden, you can have wealthy individuals, small family offices, a much larger number of hedge funds and other funds Um, participating and create a uh, far more liquid market in those debt assets.
0: Right. That's fascinating. So basically what you're saying is making the whole process more efficient actually can make the whole pie much, much bigger than what it is right now.
1: That's correct. Efficiency, so the efficiency that technology provides to the logistics will unlock far more liquidity in debt because the other barriers to liquidity, information and regulatory, aren't present there or are far less present versus equity. The um, technology that Harbor provides will help increase liquidity. It's easier to find folks the trades easier, but the amount of liquidity you can unlock is less than credit simply because the informational barriers that remain are higher um, and the regulatory barriers that remain are higher, at least in the U S and some other countries. Now I still think you can still unlock far more liquidity than you have today in equity. It's still very worthwhile. So all you fund managers and others with equity, give us a call. But um, but I do think debt, uh, it's more transformative, more uh, earlier. But our ultimate vision is, you know, all these private securities, it becomes like Expedia. I can just go in and I put in exactly what I want. I want a real estate fund invested in triple net leases in the San Francisco area, or even in certain neighborhoods and boom up pops. And I can just like, I can choose what airlines I want to buy tickets from. I can choose what fund managers, what characteristics, equity, debt, whatever it is. And it all just pops up. I can screen it easily um, and I can get access uh, particularly for wealth managers and other investors into these private assets that today it's very difficult to find.
0: Right, amazing. So basically creating a marketplace for secondary deals that doesn't really exist these days.
1: That's correct, people have tried it before, um, but the problem's been it's always been on proprietary platforms that no one else has access to on technology that's proprietary. Um, The way our system's set up is the access and the trading can be as controlled or as broad as that fund manager wants. And we think initially you'll have these sort of contained pools of liquidity, but underlying all of this are ERC-20 standard tokens that are plug-and-play into exchanges, plug-and-play into um, financial primitive technologies like Compound, DYDX, and SET, and others, plug-and-play with custodial providers. Um, and so what we see is you'll have these controlled pools of liquidity, As people get comfortable and get experience with it, those will open up over time and start to interconnect. And then eventually this all becomes findable and investable and and a couple of different widely adopted interconnected blockchains become the DNS system for the world of private investments.
0: Right, so why do you need the ELC20 tokens? Is that for the marketplace functionality? Because otherwise, right, to do the subscription and all of that, you don't really need that.
1: For a subscription, you don't need it. But when you go to trade, every time you go to trade this token, underneath it all is this compliance protocol, checking all these complex compliance requirements. That technology is plug-and-play compatible with exchanges, pieces like Open Finance, mm. uh, Shares Post, the exchanges getting set up in Singapore and Hong Kong. There are other technologies there, the... Um, the wallet or custodian providers, folks like a Bitco, there's Anchorage, there's um, other folks getting into the space like Gemini, there are folks rumored to get into the space like the Coinbases, uh, there are folks who I would expect to get in the space like a Binance. Uh, by ha- by using a standard technology, you can interact with everybody else. It's sort of like, um, it, it, it's not sort of, it's exactly like the internet. It was those common protocols that allowed people to create standardized technology that then could be adopted Um, and transformed in a number of different circumstances. If everyone had used proprietary electronic messaging standards, email never would have taken off. Um, France for a long time had its own sort of proprietary internet system that they developed before the internet. Even eventually that faded away because they wanted to connect to the wider world. Intranets were really popular for a while, um, but they took off in part because of using common standard technology that then opened up to the internet when folks were ready to do so, and the internet was at a proper state of development. So uh, using common technology allows all of us to advance the the state-of-the-art and the possibilities as opposed to proprietary systems.
0: Right. And when you talk about LC 20 Josh, uh, do you have like stable coins in mind, or are these tokens that basically represent the underlying asset? Mm
1: -hmm. So these tokens um, are the underlying assets. So I think it's worth um, stepping back in, in a legal term in the US, these are uncertificated book entry private securities. So how do you, what the, rec, the record of what you own is held by or, held, or reflected in the books and records of the corporation. So the fund manager in the old days, they had a red leather bound notebook and they wrote down, Josh, uh, 10 shares. Tomer twenty shares, and then if I sold mine to you, it'd say they'd write another line. Josh minus ten shares, Tomer plus ten shares. Then people started using Excel spreadsheets in the back office, and those would get uh, screwed up. And then they started using some SaaS software systems. And now we're doing a system that's SaaS software on top with a blockchain foundation underneath. what's happening on the blockchain is you're just simply taking a wallet address, ABC one, two, three, and a quantity, and then doing this programming that uh, makes sure any addition to that ledger follows all these rules related to compliance. And then the SAS database off chain says, Hey, wallet address, ABC one, two, three is Joshua Stein with this social security number, not on this watch list, accredited investor, this tax status, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, what the the token doesn't represent the interest. The token is the recording of the interest, which itself is the interest. So, the real estate fund um, owns its assets. Uh, those assets don't change based off the blockchain. Who owns what? The record of that is the is what the is dictates what the ownership is, and that is in part blockchain based.
0: Hmm. Interesting.
1: I guess what I'm trying to say is I said that inelegantly. Do not think of the token as something different than the share of the LP interest, right? How is it that you own 10 shares in a private company? That private company has a record that says you own 10 shares. They can write that down on a piece of paper. They can use a blockchain. Either way, that record is a record of what you own. By using a blockchain, they can allow you to interact directly with a buyer and still be assured that that interaction is compliant. In a paper-based world, I could not allow you to sell directly to somebody else because I would have no way to know that the buyer is appropriate, no way to know that you didn't sell to two people and we now have too many investors. Or um, I couldn't, As a fund manager, as the sponsor that issues the shares, I can't control for what I need to control for in a paper-based world without... There's no way for me to be in the middle in a blockchain-based world. I can enforce all the rules I need to algorithmically, nearly instantaneously, with software, and that allows buyer and seller to transact directly.
0: Right. That's that's the beauty of it. And and why? Uh, I'm just curious. Why ELC twenty? Like why why did you choose uh, Ethereum?
1: Because it's got the most adoption and the biggest developer base, and you have so many different companies just doing amazing things, you know, some of I mentioned already, mm-hmm. um, you know, and we are blockchain agnostic, the most difficult and technical development is around Solidity and the Ethereum um, architecture and programming, but the vast bulk of the work in terms of uh, developer hours is frankly on the SaaS database, it's all on the front end stuff. Um, It's on developing the fundamental uh, rules. It's a lot of money spent on legal research and understanding all these different jurisdictional rules and how they might work together and and anticipating what the issues might be in liquidity in a world that hasn't traditionally experienced it. So um, we are long-term blockchain agnostic. If and when other blockchain technologies start to get real adoption and start to have other regulated players on it, like regulated exchanges and custodians, we can very quickly support other um, blockchain technologies.
0: Got it. Yeah, because the obvious challenge right now, at least with the whole ELC 20 ecosystem, is just the capacity and the bandwidth of the network. I mean, t- TBD, how that's going to change with ETH 2.0. Uh, but right now, that's that's, uh, that's a challenge.
1: It's a, theor- yeah, but it's a theoretical challenge today. Fundamentally, the challenge is adoption and usage. We're not at a point at which um, those pipes are completely clogged up. Um, When that happens, when it's fundamentally capacity constrained, that, in fact, will help stimulate adoption of other uh, blockchain technologies. And we'll quickly pick up and support those where the developer community goes or where our clients want to support
0: yeah, I buy it to a certain extent, that argument. I think some people would argue that, you know, part of the problem with adoption is exactly that, is because of the capacity constraints that exist right now, right? There was this, um, um, I forgot that project, uh, what, like a month ago? No, even no more recently, uh, what was it, like last month or so, when, you know, apparently it was like a scam or something, but it completely blocked the network.
1: Yeah. So that was temporary. I think so. A couple of things. One is, is um, today these private securities almost never trade when they do. It takes weeks or months for the transaction to consummate. We're going to take that down to within a day. But if, if the transaction time, the block writing time is, Fifteen minutes instead of fifteen seconds—that's not a big deal for the types of situations.
0: Right, in your case, it's not—it's not a major issue. Yeah,
1: these, these are not these are not the public markets. Um, people are not trading these in milliseconds. These are not the cryptocurrency markets. So I just don't, for the foreseeable future, I just don't see it being an issue. But I mean, we have talked to a number of other folks at various stages with other layer one protocols. Um, we track their development. Um, And when I talk to those folks, I mean, a lot of them have some really interesting, innovative designs. Um, To us, it's just all about adoption from other regulated players in the space. Because in the securities world, it's not enough just to have us adopt. You got to have exchanges, you got to have other um, brokers, you got to have custodians. There's a whole network of folks that need to be willing to adopt to make it all work.
0: Right. Yeah, no, it makes sense. And Ethereum is clearly the leader in terms of, uh, at least right now, in terms of adoption and developer activity. And how do you think about your go-to market? Are you really focused on the U.S. market right now? Or do you also um, open the option for um, both international investors and international funds to onboard to your platform?
1: We're interested in both international both investors and funds. Um, I would say our clients now um, are all U.S. funds, although we are in late-stage discussions with some folks um, in Canada and Europe. Um, uh, The investor base that have onboard on the platform, largely U.S., but some foreign investors um, from around the world. But we're we're definitely open to it, um, and we welcome it.
0: Right, and I imagine also just from a regulatory perspective, right, you want to be pretty – uh, purpose, purposeful about where you go next. I mean, I assume there's a lot of regulatory headache in each new jurisdiction that you enter.
1: It's a lot of research to make sure we understand the rules and our systems can handle it. Um, the I think that, frankly, the headache is more on the fund managers side um, because they um, when they deal cross-jurisdictionally, it has a lot of impact in how they strategize about what investors to target, how they target them, whether or not they need a licensed broker partner in the other market. Uh, there's how restrictions on types of investors, investor numbers, tax considerations, it just, it gets more complex. Um, so that, I mean, that is just harder there from uh, uh, for the funds trying to do it. But I think that's frankly where our software shines on the Um, fundraising management piece precisely because when you start raising across different jurisdictions, then the paperwork shuffle becomes even harder. It becomes that much harder to keep up with all the different compliance requirements. And so having a system that gathers all their paperwork that works 24 seven, that lets people self-process through and that uh, imposes a lot of the compliance or assists in a lot of the compliance efforts. And then gives you a really good record of everything you did that becomes far more valuable in a context in which you're selling to larger numbers of people spread all over the world.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and, and do, you know, when you think about the future, do you see a world where, you know, maybe we don't need administrators at some point because the system replaces them? Or do all the intermediaries that are involved right now, both from legal, accounting, perspective, and so forth, th- there will still be a need for them even, you know, years down the road?
1: Uh, it's a good question, and I think the answers look very different. So, in terms of fund administrators, certain things cannot be done, or I don't, are unlikely to be done uh, for the foreseeable future on chain. So, figuring out tax issues, for example, certain things I think certain functions that fund administrators do I think can be made easier, or abstracted away. The more payments um, are done on blockchain, the easier the fund administrator job is some things that fund administrators do like um, sending out distributions that can be automated on chain as as the revenues for that fund become on chain. A lot of it's kind of a chicken and egg problem. The more that happens on chain, the more that can be done on chain, the more that gets automated away. And that slowly increases over time. I think it, I think it'll take a long time before we feel those effects. Um, for things like brokers or uh, uh, wealth advisors, that doesn't—I don't think—that goes away. The role changes a little bit in, in the sense of um, individuals are still going to rely on advisors to invest and um, to due diligence. Um, the role of certain folks is always going to be necessary for the foreseeable future, based on the way the regulations are set up. I think the more you have on-chain, the more you have in electronic databases, it actually enables those uh, wealth management folks, those um, brokers and registered investment advisors, they can actually um, do more because they have access to more information.
0: Yeah, makes sense. So we talked about the benefits for fund managers, right, the GPs and then the service providers. What's been, the, curious, what's been the feedback um, from the limited partners? So the people who actually invest into the funds and are on that other side of the table, you know, from subscription all the way to um, selling their uh, holdings in, in certain funds. What's, what's been their uh, response so far?
1: Uh, it's a range of responses, nothing negative, but you get, uh, it ranges from, um, indifference to enthusiasm. So for some folks, they're in the investment, they're not going anywhere. Um, okay. Now they've got an online portal. They can log in and see their statements, but they don't really do that anyway. They rely on the advisor. So if you think of like a You know, 70 year old investor who wants everything mailed to them, never logs on to an account on the web and is just going to sit in the investment through the expiration of the fund. This doesn't really do much for them. Right. They're picking up the phone, talking to their advisor. For their advisor, it makes things easier because they can log in. They can see all their different investors in the fund. They can get access to the statements so they don't have to go email the GP all the time. Uh, you know, for some investors, those that are younger, more wet savvy, they can log into their account. They can see what's going on. They can indicate an interest to buy or sell those things that are available in the secondary. Um, that becomes interesting. You know, folks have already made um, some transfers using the system and they've been excited about that. So you just you get a wide variety. Um, but I think what's important is when we go out um, and sell to GPs and as investors on board, you will never hear the word token and you'll see the word blockchain, but it's certainly not emphasized or highlighted. Um, what we emphasize is you've now got tools to make your life easier um, and you have a way to indicate interest to buy or sell. These funds that are available on secondary. Um, but what we don't do is yell the word token, token, token and expect that to make a sudden change in the market.
0: Right. So why don't you, like, why don't you, I get the point around token, but like the blockchain piece, why isn't that more emphasized?
1: Because I don't think it adds anything to what, um, to what the investor GP is looking for. Uh, what they're looking for is a technology solution to their problems. Not what they're not looking for is a blockchain based solution. I, I think the problem is is, People confuse enthusiasm for the technology um, for the value of the solution. And so what we pitch is the solution and the value of the solution. We don't pitch the underlying technology.
0: Right. Basically, how you do it, I don't really care. Just give me the solutions that address some of these pain points that I'm experiencing.
1: That's correct. The um, And, and the just you start talking about the technology People get scared. They get confused. I want to share. I didn't want a token. Like, it just, it causes mass confusion.
0: Yeah, I can imagine. What about privacy? We talked about the LC20. Uh, Does that mean that, you know, subscriptions and transfers that happen are visible on the Ethereum blockchain?
1: The transfers are, but the nature of the information that's available is limited. So... What you can see is wallet address ABC123 has quantity 7 and wallet address XYZ456 has quantity 20. And then you can see if they adjust quantities. You don't know who owns those wallet addresses, whether they're the same or different people or entities. Um, If in the smart contract that's on the blockchain, you can include information that indicates who the sponsor or fund is. You can also anonymize all that information. You can just simply say, I have no idea what the smart contract refers to at all. You just know if there's a smart contract, you know, it relates to Harbor. And you know, there's a bunch of wallet addresses with quantities. And that's really about all you can divine on the blockchain. So so there's not, you know, you can put more information on there as a sponsor if you want. But if you want to minimize the information available, you can make it, so that is really quite minimal.
0: Right. Did you consider at any point using a private blockchain?
1: No, I think um, long-term, I think you'll see a mix of uh, private or permission blockchains, um, semi permission blockchains, and fully open uh, non permission blockchains. And different ones will work in different circumstances. So if we go back to the example of the top 12 or 15 banks that trade FX, they should have a private permission blockchain. I mean, that's, that's very clear. Whether they do uh, private uh, instance of Ethereum or they use Hyperledger or whatever they use, they should clearly have their own private system amongst them. Why is that? Because you only have 12 or 15 players will have incredibly high throughput and it'll have an incredible privacy, right? I mean, that's for them, that's the solution. For what we're attacking, which is this broad, fragmented market of private alternative assets, we think you want a public blockchain because you have all these disparate actors who don't know each other. And so for that to be able to plug and play into all those other technologies and providers we talked about, custodians, exchanges, financial technologies, that only works with using a uh, public non-permission blockchain like Ethereum. And then there are going to be other circumstances there in between. I think the uh, it fundamentally depends on what's the number and nature of the participants and what's the nature of what you're trying to do. That will determine which blockchain to use and whether you're using something that's private or public.
0: Right, right. So I talked with someone recently in this in the space and told me that one of the challenges with Going the public blockchain route is some, some funds, um, for regulatory reasons, need to know who, who runs the nodes. And like they can't be in a position where you, know, you don't know who, who actually owns the nodes and, and have access to the data, even though to a large degree it is anonymized, to your point. I don't know if you've experienced similar feedback.
1: Never. So I've never had anybody uh, have bring up like, so I, I have heard people at conferences say that, you know, Ethereum miners need to be licensed brokers. and um, But I've never had anybody, anytime after I've talked to somebody, all those objections kind of fade away.
0: Right. Because I would, I would think that the fact that it's public, both the, the transparent. Um, element of it, but also the fact that it's public and you have many, many nodes on the network actually provides many benefits in terms of both transparency and security. Um, But what this person told me was a bit different. So, yeah.
1: Yeah. So that's interesting. I don't know if it's a particular jurisdiction or if they have a a legal theory or if they've gotten a gender and to grind, but I've never... We spent a lot of time. I've talked to regulators around the planet. I mean, uh, Harbor is a subsidiary of Portum that recently got uh, broker-dealer licenses. It was the, we're the first security token issuance platform to have a licensed uh, broker-dealer arm in the U.S. Um, sent, you know, in, in recent days, that was uh, approved. Um, we've talked to uh, the SEC. We've talked to CFTC. We've talked to uh, regulators around the world. I've never had one um bring up as a concern the fact that there are different miners or nodes around the world
0: okay interesting so maybe switching gears a bit a couple of more questions about Harble. and um, so there's been a couple of uh, i think uh, uh, really interesting developments over the past few months um Hey, last month you got, uh, which I think was a major development for the space as a whole, not just for you as a company, where you got that broker-dealer license um, by FINRA. And, but but even before we get to that, earlier this year, there was the uh, Megadome deal that you worked on, which I know didn't work out in the end. So would love to hear more maybe about that deal and the... Uh, you know, why it didn't work out and maybe some of the stuff you learned that led you to getting that broker-dealer license more recently.
1: Yeah, so I think that deal the broker-dealer license um, are separate, are totally separate things and unconnected. I mean, actually, we were uh, pursuing a broker-dealer license with FINRA for 15 months. Um, so that's a; those are two very different things. Um, but uh, let's talk briefly about the dorm deal because I think um, that will talk to the evolution of platform and what we learned. So if you go back to 2017, um, you know, Harbor, some of the other similar platforms out there um, all got started late 2017 to early 2018. And we all kind of came to the same insights around the same time, which was ICOs were hot. Um, What we perceived, which I think was incorrect and I'll get to why, but what everyone perceived was investors were excited about this new technology and liquidity it allows and that the technology would attract and excite investors. But what we saw where ICOs were non-compliant, They, we thought they were gonna get shut down, um, and we thought that the number of valid software protocols that needed a token was far less than the number of real world assets that would benefit from tokenization. I think all of those uh, assumptions uh, or thoughts proved out correct with the exception of one. So. The SEC and regulators around the world did crack down on the ICO craze, particularly in the U.S., but also elsewhere. Um, the fact is, as we can see from the um, proliferation of shitcoins, coins, the number of valuable um, software protocol tokens or cryptocurrencies, the, no, the, the valid number of them is far less than the thousands or tens of thousands of people predicted. Um, and we do, and yeah, we do believe in the real value of tokenization, the real world assets, but the fundamental attribution error was to think that investors were excited about the technology and that that would transfer to real world assets. We all thought, everyone in the industry thought wow, if investors are this excited about a token that's not backed by security interest not backed by a contractual undertaking in fact it's not even backed by a functioning software protocol. How excited will investors be about real world assets? And Harvard thought wow What will they be excited if we only partner with the best issuers and the best investments and the most institutional partners? How excited will they be then? Well, all of us in the industry were wrong. People asking when Lambo, when Moon have zero interest in quality U.S. real estate uh, on a risk-adjusted returns basis with a 7% cash-on-cash yield. The overlap is zero because fundamentally what the cryptocurrency craze was about was speculation. Um, And I think something that really brought it home for me was when I was reading about Robinhood the Wall Street Journal. Maybe this was a year or so ago. Um, And these numbers won't be exactly correct, but they're pretty close. Something like 85 or 90 percent of the trades on Robinhood are stocks priced between three and ten dollars. You know, Robinhood was about democratizing access to investment by eliminating trading commissions. That's not really what's going on. It's not that the best investment opportunities for millennials are stocks priced between three and ten dollars. It's because you're speculating, you're gambling, and that's a cheap bet. You can play Candy Crush, you can play video poker, you can load, go lay down twenty-five bucks on the blackjack table if you're in Vegas, um, or you can spend three bucks or five bucks to buy some ticker symbol that's vaguely familiar. Um, and the ba- vast majority of the usage was going on while people were in line at the supermarket or on the couch at the commercial break for a football game. So um, what's going on is people were speculating and gambling. That's clearly what's going on with the cryptocurrencies. And so that activity, asking when Lambo, when Moon for a cryptocurrency um, or a shitcoin is fundamentally different than investing in traditional alternative assets, whether that's a quote unquote digital security or not. And so that, um, that was a fundamental mistake that everyone made. Um, And so that resulted in we made a number of changes to the technology, um, to the marketing, and how we talked about the value prop, and especially in um, who we're targeting and selling. We think um, some folks are hiring us and are using this fundraising management platform, and we're excited about that. But we also, the tokenization piece, we have a lot of folks coming to us who they have already existing funds. And they're saying, hey, I want to enable some liquidity. And so they're quote unquote tokenizing the existing capital structure, i.e., you're using this technology to enhance liquidity at the point at which the investors want it and will benefit from it, rather than yelling the word token when you're raising money as a marketing gimmick, thinking hot, dumb money will rain from the skies. So that's the fundamental difference. And I think talking about um, a recent client that we went public with, ICAP Equity, kind of could bring that to light.
0: Yeah, that's really insightful and maybe just for our listeners who are less familiar with the uh, Mega Dome, if you can uh, if you can talk about that for a sec.
1: It was in South Carolina, Columbia, South Carolina. It was this, it was a single asset private REIT. So, it was a uh, real estate investment trust a real estate investment vehicle that's tax advantaged in the US. It was single asset. So, it was it was going to own a large minority position, I think 49% if I recall correctly, of this luxury student dorm. Um, so it allowed investors to invest in a single asset that they could understand. Um, it was on many levels of attractive investment. The sponsor, um, DRW, which has um, uh, a great track record in real estate, um, they eventually pulled the offering. We ran, The offering DRW ran into issues with the uh, mortgage lender, and to refinance it would have caused the numbers to make it not a good investment. And that was why it got pulled. But fundamentally, it was selling, but it wasn't flying off the shelves. Yelling the word yelling the word token did not, in fact, cause investors to rush in. That, that was a fundamental error um, that us and Templum and Securitize and everyone else um, has realized. Right. The initial enthusiasm was wow by using this technology i can open up a direct to investor channel that didn't exist before because raising capital is hard in fact the technology does not do that it makes the logistics of raising money easier the technology the transformational value of liquidity this technology allows for but what it doesn't do is just cause truckloads of money to show up at the door it it
0: would have been nice if it did though
1: Oh yes, yes,
0: okay, my friend. Um, so, so last question, Josh. Would love to hear more about that uh, broker dealer license you got, which again I think is you know an amazing accomplishment. If you can talk a bit about that and why did you decide to pursue it to begin with? Sounds like it's been in the works for a long time.
1: Yeah. So um, I think why. So it's useful as why we pursued has changed over time. So originally we were pursuing because we were going to raise capital under the harbor name, right? We had this technology excited investor interest. We had the best tech, you know, we had the, uh, I still believe we've got the best tech out there. Uh, We had the deepest sort of bench, Um, our chief compliance officer over 20 years of experience a managing director of compliance at places like Citigroup and JP Morgan on Fender's continuing education council. I've got experience obviously as a GC and chief compliance officer as a former federal prosecutor Um, technical folks with a deep background in Silicon Valley in startups and mature tech companies and highly regulated spaces like insurance and payments and elsewhere. So we really felt like we were the best institutional partner, had the best tech, had the deepest um, experience across the three domains you need in capital markets, legal, regulatory, and technology. But what the BD license originally was is that we could sell um, get paid a commission for raising money and do it through our own captive broker-dealer arm. Um, instead of what we start with where we had registered reps, I'm a uh, licensed broker, we had others, and we hung our hat with a friendly broker-dealer. So the securities were actually offered by another broker-dealer. That sort of third-party relationship has... It's, um, it's not bad, but it's not ideal. It has certain frictions and you give up a lot of the economics. So that was the original idea because back in the day, the technology is going to excite the investors and being a licensed broker dealer was going to allow us to sell it and get paid, not a software licensing fee, but a commission on raising the capital. Fast forward to now, our focus is on selling the technology under traditional SaaS contracts. Um, what I like to say is harbor technologies or harbor the platform we're salesforce.com. We're not the actual Salesforce. force. What the licensed broker dealer allows us to do is in certain circumstances where we think it makes sense, we can actually go out there and sell. And I think where, the way we envision it is it's less us doing the selling in the sense of calling up and emailing investors because we don't have a large installed base of investors. It's more us assembling selling coalitions, selling, assembling groups of uh, placement agents, and broker dealers in the U S and abroad in a way that can sell this stuff very efficiently um, using our technology. So, you know, for sorts, ex- for example, foreign issuers coming into the U S they need a local broker dealer to chaperone them and help sell. We have um, 18 broker dealers and other placement agents uh, on the platform today. and We're quickly adding more. Um, and over time we want to develop analytics so that we can match exactly the right, uh, place agents with exactly the right sponsors to help them efficiently raise the capital they need and the broker-dealer allows us to bring all that together um, in a compliant way in a very efficient way uh, and to appropriately get paid for that service
0: yeah that's that sounds amazing so Josh thanks so much for uh, coming on the show it's been a real pleasure having you on the show thanks for taking the time
1: no thank you tomara you know hopefully um a year from now, we're doing a follow-up on all the great, um, all the great progress that's happened in the space.
0: For sure. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode of The Blockchain VC and want to help us bring more awareness to the space, I'd really appreciate it if you can rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast. This only takes a few seconds and helps us get the word out.